We're going to be going through Luke chapter 21, verses 32 through 38. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Morning. Welcome to Regeneration. Excuse the hat. Someone told me that it wasn't godly to wear a hat up here. I don't want to stumble you, so I took it off. I will put it back on after, so don't get on me about that. If you're new here, we just go through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're currently in a study of Luke, and so here we are, Luke chapter 21. We will wrap it up today. Yay! It's been a long time. This chapter is known as the Olivet Discourse. And if you need some background on that, you can go into iTunes and look that up. You can look up any of the series that we've done in the past here. As we're wrapping this up, knowing that this is the discourse, verse 5 is what started this whole discourse when the disciples were at the temple and like, oh, check this out. This is a beautiful place. Look at the stones and all this stuff. And so Jesus replied in verse 6, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This was in reference to the temple. Then the disciples asked Jesus in verse 7, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? That question in verse 7 was what sparked this whole discourse. And so how did their question in verse 7 even come about? Well, Jesus spoke of the destruction of the temple in verse 6, and so this was a really, really, really big deal to the disciples, and you may ask why. Why Why is that such a big deal? Because the temple represented for them everything that they knew about religion, everything that they knew about spiritual life, everything that they knew about a relationship with God is in that temple. It was a sacred place to them. It was a sacred place to the Jews. It was where they went to meet God, to encounter God. So when Jesus said, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down, they thought that Jesus meant it's the end of the world. That's it. How can the world exist without our temple? So this must be the end of the world. Matthew recorded this for us in Matthew 24, verse 3. It says, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age. In the Synoptic Gospels, it's the same story, the Olivet Discourse, except Matthew includes this detail there. How did Jesus respond to them? Well, Jesus didn't go on and give them this detailed timeline of when things were to happen. He didn't tell them, you know what, between 66 AD and 70 AD, Jerusalem is going to come under a Roman siege, and that's when the temple will be thrown down. He didn't say that much detail. He did tell them when Jerusalem is surrounded, run, get out of there. But he didn't tell them when. What Jesus did tell them also was to be watchful and to take action. When you see that, take off. Take action. Now look at the action instructions in these couple of verses that we're going to take a look at today, starting in verse 34. It says, watch yourselves. 
And then you jump to verse 36 and it says, Stay awake, praying. Now take note of that as we are moving forward there. And take note that we are not to sit back passively until our death or until the return of Jesus Christ. We are to take action. Now, the purpose of studying the Bible isn't merely to accumulate knowledge, which I think a lot of people do. What good is the accumulation of this biblical knowledge if it just stops there and it doesn't transform your life? It doesn't change your life. I mean, you can study anything. Why bother studying this? The Spirit, the Word of God, and taking action, and that taking action and and changing our lives, and in turn, we are transformed and we take action for the kingdom of God and for the gospel. It's common knowledge, it is undisputed fact that Jesus lived and that he died. There's no sane human who can debate the existence of Jesus as a man. But if that knowledge isn't transformative, that's just information. Right? So in order for change to happen, we need to know why Jesus died. Why did he die? He died for our sins. And that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. Now, we can simply make that just information as well. Yeah, he died for our sins. Which many Christians have done because you look at their lives and there is no action. There is no act to prove that that information is transforming them. That information is changing them. There is no act. So how do you apply what you have learned in the Bible is key. Have you taken action or is it just some accumulation of knowledge, of information? Is there enough evidence to prove that you are guilty of being a follower of Jesus? Will you be found guilty of being a follower of Jesus? Or is the evidence inconclusive because the actions as a follower of Jesus are lacking? No one can point to anything. There's no proof. Now I'm not saying that you are saved by your works. You are saved by grace. But let me ask you this question. If you don't have works, are you saved? See, we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We're saved for good works. And maybe you know enough answers to the Bible to pass a Bible test. Did Jesus die for your sins? Yes. Great. You passed that written exam. Now for the real thing. Now for the practical exam. Prove it. And you're thinking, how? Well, how has your life changed? How has your life changed since your relationship with Jesus? And it's not necessarily you're going out and check, check off lists of all the task lists of everything you've done. But how have you changed? How has your heart changed? How, how has your life been transformed with a relationship with Jesus? It's important to be knowledgeable of the Bible. I'm not saying that it's not. But more importantly, how has it changed your life? And if it hasn't, what good is that information? So keep this in mind as we look at our text this morning because our text today is just really intellectually challenging and stimulating, particularly in verse 32. But how is it transformative? Now verse 32, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. What in the world does this verse mean? Well, this verse is really challenging because scholars and commentators don't agree with what this verse means. So there are those who interpret this generation as those who lived 
prior to 70 AD, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, and that the entire chapter, the entire chapter of, uh, of chapter 21, the whole Olivet Discourse, is in reference to those before 70 AD, that generation. I pointed out a couple of weeks ago that I don't believe that the entire chapter is in reference to those before 70 AD. Luke pointed to specific things earlier in the chapter, like armies surrounding Jerusalem and and referencing this people in verse 23. But then the language just gets really broad. And so you get to verses 25 and 26, and the language is really broad. Signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth distressed of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. You, You sense that the language is just getting more broad, more inclusive, more general. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. It's much more broad. Verses 25 and 26 are way more broad compared to earlier verses in chapter 21. So I don't think that all of chapter 21 speaks of the time before 70 AD. I think there's a progression. There's a progression of the prophecy of what would happen in 70 AD to that of the coming of the end of the age. But then Luke throws in this phrase this generation in verse 32 so who's that i mean couldn't you just be so neat and chronological like you start in 70 ad and just move on but now you're starting this generation why couldn't he say that generation it would have just made total sense and so some of you are thinking like i didn't even think about that why are you making an issue of that sorry i just made it more complicated you probably just read it and was like oh it's fine let's move on but i can't do that so is this The generation before 70 AD, or is it something else, someone else? And so I think this is one of those things where Christians can disagree without insulting one another or dividing over, really. There are intelligent people on all sides of the different interpretations of this verse, and it doesn't prove one's love of Jesus, so there's no need to be dogmatic about this. There are things to be dogmatic about, right? Like Jesus being God incarnate. The authority of the Bible. Those are things to be more dogmatic about. This one? Really? This generation? No, it's this. No, it's that. Whatever. Calm down. Let's hug. Let's hug it out, right? Let's... This is not a moral issue. It's not a moral issue. So there's room for debate here. It's not one of those things that, you know, I'm going to die on this hill for this. I'm going to put my flag in. The... This generation means this. Okay. Let's hug. You know, I don't care. It's just not crystal clear. And so there's this debate amongst people who are just as godly as one another and just as desirous to seek God's heart as those on the other sides of the debate. So we went through the beginning of chapter 21 to point out that Jesus spoke about those people in 70 AD and how it progressed to include everyone until Jesus' return and the end of the age. If that is so... We're moving on this progression. Who is this generation? Verse 32. Who is this generation? Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. So, if it was the generation prior to 70 AD, if it was those that people say it's that generation prior to 70 AD, they did pass away. Right? So people who believe, oh, it's the whole chapter is before 70. Are any of you still alive? It would be really scary. They're dead, right? 
They did pass away before the end of the age, as spoken in of earlier verses and before the return of Jesus. So what does this mean? I don't think it can mean that generation, or can it? Some believe Jesus gave this as an inaccurate prophecy that he just gave a wrong thing, which is totally nonsensical. That would make no sense at all. Jesus, God, is not wrong. He's not wrong. If he is, if he's wrong about this, you might as well throw everything else out because what can you depend on? If the word of God can't be depended on, what can be? Which brings us to the next verse. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. We know God's words will not pass away, but who is this generation? There are scholars and commentators who believe this generation does not actually mean a generation, but it means a group. That this group, this group of people who turn away from God, who are rebellious against God, that type of people will always be around to reject Jesus. There are others who think that this generation is in reference to a race, specifically the Jews, the Jewish people, and how they will not pass away until all this has taken place. I can see that. They're still here. Another thought is that this generation is actually that generation. Those who are present to witness, verse 31, when you see all these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. So this generation is talking about those who are going to be witnessed in verse 31. So those are kind of the main beliefs of this generation that you'll find in commentaries. There are many more interpretations, but I'm just going to stop there because that's not what this is about. So some of you may be interested. Well, where do you land on this? Nowhere. Skip the whole thing. Let's forget about it. Let's move on to the next verse. No. We can't do that, right? Or I can't do that. It would drive me nuts. I would pull my hair out. This is where I land. And I'm not forcing it on you. I'm not saying be dogmatic. I'm saying if you disagree, let's hug it out. We're all right. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. It's fine. But I have to look back to previous references, right? I have to look to other references. So, I have to look towards Matthew. What did Matthew record about this passage? He said, Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? When they asked, when will these things be? Remember that they thought that the destruction of the temple included the end of the age. That that was as well. The destruction of the temple equates to the end of the age for them. So I think Jesus answered their question about when will these things be by referencing the generation he was directly speaking to before 70 AD. This generation referring to the people, to his generation, the people living as Jesus' contemporaries will not pass away until all referring to what happened in 70 AD has taken place. I think Jesus progressed from this prophecy of the destruction of the temple to the end of the age, and then he went back to address 70 AD again. That's what I think. And I think this because Jesus himself said he doesn't know when he will be returning. Right? Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Mark 13, 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Both of these verses are in context to the Olivet Discourse as recorded by Matthew and Mark. In the Synoptic Gospels, this is the same story, except Luke didn't include this tidbit on there. So if Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back, 
how can he be referring to a specific generation in the future? He doesn't know. And if he meant a group of people or a race of people, why didn't he just say that? Why didn't he just say the Israelites? Or why didn't he just say that? So aside from Jesus talking about his return and the end of the world, everything else in this chapter is in reference to what happened to the generation of his contemporaries, his generation prior to 70 A.D., Jesus doesn't know when he'll return, but he knew that it wasn't before the destruction of the second temple. That much he did know. After that, he doesn't know when. So the destruction of the second temple had to happen before his return. So it makes sense for him to say, this generation, the one that he's speaking to, his contemporaries, will not pass away until all the destruction of the second temple, the siege of Jerusalem in 78 AD, has taken place. Some of you may disagree. And you know what? I can argue all the other arguments. I know all of them. I can argue those well and and defend them. But this is where I land in regards to this verse. And I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. I'm not going to force it down anyone's throat. But this is where I land today. might be different later. Since everything Jesus prophesied about 70 AD came true, right? That all came true. Rome came under siege. Titus came and destroyed the second temple. Don't you think you better get your relationship right with Jesus Christ right now because he also prophesied about his return? That's why this matters. Because that came true. What he prophesied about his return is coming true. That's pretty serious, don't you think? Because that did come true. So what he's saying about our future, that's going to come true too. The word of God, that does not pass away. The destruction of the temple and Jerusalem was not just some lucky guess that he made. He was right on and he gave them warning. He has told us about his return and has given us warning. The word of God is true. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So the question is, how are you doing? How are you doing? You don't get caught up with how this generation is defined in verse 32 and get all heady about that or with how other things outside the core of Jesus are defined because when we focus too hard on these secondary issues that are not core issues, we lose sight of Jesus. We know Jesus is coming back. We know that with him comes the judgment and the end of the world. That is a core issue. We don't know if it's our generation or not, but we know we are to be ready. That much we do know. So who is this generation in verse 32? It's either that generation before 7080 or something else. Right? Don't get all hung up on about it. Whether it's a group, a race, or generate, whatever. And when Jesus continued verse 32 with, will not pass away until all has taken place. Well, what's all? All is everything spoken about in reference to the events prior to 70 AD. Or, it's something else. So, Study what makes sense to you, and we're going to still be friends, knowing that the primary thing we're to concern ourselves with is knowing Jesus is returning and that we are to be ready. How are we to be ready? Verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your heart be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. We are 
told to be vigilant, to be watchful, to be attentive, to be alert. This is a call to preparedness, and this is a call to action. It's not simply information. It's not simply what you know, but what you do with what you know. How will you live with what you know? And the first call to action in verse 34 is to watch. Watch yourselves. The meaning of this Greek word is to bring to or to bring near. It's the word used to describe bringing a ship to land. So how do you do that? How does the skipper bring his ship to land? Carefully. right? Mindfully. Attentively. He does not pilot that ship recklessly. Carelessly. Inattentively. Inconsiderately. If you do that with your ship, you're going to destroy it. You're going to ram it into rocks. You're going to destroy the ship. So we are to carefully, mindfully, attentively watch ourselves. Jesus issued this warning in Luke chapter 17, verse 3. He said, pay attention to yourselves. It's the same Greek word. And he was saying, be on guard in regards to your sin. And here we have a reminder from Jesus because he knows the danger of sin and he knows the common pitfalls of people. So he warned of some of these common snares. Let's take a look at the first one here. Dissipation. What is that? Dissipation is the giddiness and headache caused by excessive drinking. But the definition is not just used for drinking. It's also used for the overindulgence of any physical pleasures. We have a lot of physical pleasures, right? Sex. Sex is a great physical pleasure. But that has to be done in the context of marriage. Yet there is an indulgence of sex in our society to where sex outside of marriage, that's widely accepted. It's not a big thing. There's this pornography epidemic to where that is the most common starter for not only other sexual immorality, but for crime. And there's also the overindulgence of drink. There's the overindulgence of food, which are unhealthy, and they bring about a host of other problems. So to quote one of my favorite books, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, he wrote, Sin is pleasure taken in the wrong way, at the wrong time, in the wrong quantity, or with the wrong person. Pleasure itself belongs to God. If you want to take a look at a picture of dissipation, look to the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. The younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living, and when he had spent everything, there's your picture of dissipation. Jesus said, But watch yourselves, lest your heart be weighed down with dissipation. Weighed down meaning burdened, depressed, burdened and depressed by the weight of dissipation. What else are we to be in watch of in verse 34? Because there are three of them. First is dissipation, then it's drunkenness. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. Intoxication. Right? Drunkenness. So let's be careful about being too legalistic with drinking alcohol because Scripture does not instruct us to abstain from drinking alcohol. Does it? You cannot find that verse for me. 
But let's also be careful about being too loose with how we approach drinking alcohol. Right? Some people just go out and don't have a care in the world and they're just drinking and it doesn't matter. We need to keep some principles in mind as we are exercising these freedoms that we have. It's clear that the scriptures instruct us not to be a stumbling block or hindrance to other believers. Right? Romans chapter 14 verses 12 through 17. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one from whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's clear, right? Stumbling blocks, hindrances, put them away. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal about my hat. My hair's messy anyway. It doesn't matter. And it's clear that we have instructions in Scripture that teach us about not being enslaved to anything. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, All things are lawful for me. Even this beer. That guy. It's water. It's water. It is water. I'll save some for you. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. So we have these principles, but the Bible doesn't say to us to abstain from drink. It doesn't. It does teach us about drunkenness and against that, as found in verse 34. And why would Jesus say anything about drunkenness? Because it was happening. That's why. He addressed it because it's an issue. If people weren't getting drunk, he probably wouldn't say anything about it. But people were getting drunk, so he's saying something about it. Now keep in mind, Jesus doesn't have much longer to live. We're only like 180-something verses away, 190-something like that. So he's pouring out his last words to his disciples. He's answering their questions. He's instructing them how to live. He's warning them about their future, not to be led astray. Don't be terrified. He gave them this wonderful discourse in chapter 21. And towards the tail end of this discourse, he concluded with, But watch yourselves, lest your heart be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. So then we come to the third item to watch for, the cares of this life. This is also something Jesus taught about earlier in the parable of the soils in Luke chapter 8. Right? We're told that the seed, the seed is the word of God, and it was sown, and the seed landed on different soils. It landed on a beaten path, it landed on rock, it landed amongst thorns, and it landed on good soil. And so the soil among the thorns is what relates to our passage this morning. So we're going to look at that third soil, chapter 8, verse 14 of Luke. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. The cares of this life in our text today in Luke chapter 21. And their fruit does not mature. The Word of God begins to take root in people's lives, but as they begin to live out their faith in Jesus, they are diverted. They are distracted. They are redirected. They are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. They are choked by anxiety, by worry, 
by material possessions, desire for pleasures. How many of us are pulled away from God by our anxieties and worries? How do you worry about those things that pull you away from God? See, I didn't think that I was that much of a worrier. I thought, you know, I'm pretty good. I, I don't worry that much. I don't have that much anxiety. Until I took a prayer retreat a couple of weeks ago with a friend of mine, and God showed up. I mean, I haven't heard God so clearly in a while. But he showed up in my prayers. He revealed to me how much I do, in fact, worry. And in that time of prayer, I was up in the Oakland Hills here with a friend of mine from New Hope Church. And I was shown how I've been pulled away from God in my desire for riches and the pleasures of life. I'm so weak. I had no idea I was that weak. So I confessed these things to a group of senior pastors at a pastor's retreat last week, and I meet with a spiritual director about these issues. Now keep in mind, I'm a pastor, an ordained, trained pastor, and I study the Bible a lot. I pray a lot, and I practice spiritual disciplines a lot. I am a godly man. I serve God and I serve others a lot. I am a good father. I am a good husband. I can confess those things to you. But I also confess to you, I'm sinful. I'm a sinner. And I'm struggling with these things. None of us are immune to being choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life where our fruit does not mature. And many of us want to be mature followers of Jesus, yet we get choked I have worries. Let me share a couple of them with you. Just to be open and honest and so that you can share your sins with others as well. And I want to just model it for you. I worry about if I'm ever going to be able to buy a house in this area and making what I make. And then where am I going to be able to live in the future? Because is it going to be safe? Because I live in Oakland. So I worry, are my kids going to be able to play outside? Are they going to be able to walk to the store? Do I have to worry about them? You know, do I have to buy them an iPhone so they can have a tracking thing? And I can see, oh, there they are, okay. But I can't afford it. Oh, riches, you know, all this stuff. I worry about how I'm going to afford another car because right now we're a one-car family. How how am I going to buy another car? I worry about my kids' education living here. What's going to happen to them? 70% dropout rate amongst black males in Oakland High School. Granted, my kids are not black males, but... (laughs) Well, they can be. I'm open to adoption. I got a bunch of them out there anyway. Go to the Taekwondo program. I got a bunch. It's not that odd, is it? I worry about providing for them. I make X amount of dollars. Am I going to be able to afford college? I can tell you no, I'm not. (laughs) That's not even a question. No, I can't. Not right now as things stand. Am I going to be able to do some cool vacations with them? Pleasures of life, you know, desires, all this kind of stuff. And it's not to say that we don't have responsibilities and we don't exercise wisdom and we don't exercise discernment in our decision making. But I have to admit, 
I've been a bit consumed with these worries and these desires for riches and these desires for pleasures, and I'm consumed with self-preservation of myself and of my family. I'm consumed with security for myself and of my family, and that has been placed in front of God, and that is idolatry. I'm a sinner. I'm sinful, even though I do all those other things well. I don't think we're all that different, are we? You probably have some worries. What are you going to do for work? All you college people in college or people looking for work, what are you going to do? Are you ever going to find a spouse? How are you going to pay your debt? You probably have some desires for riches and pleasures, right? I walked in here, I counted four new iPhone 5s. (laughs) I saw you guys with it. Some of you probably even have more, right? I'm not pointing a finger at you because I have one too. So I'm not saying, ah, I'm saying, eh, right? So mine was a gift. Just as this was. This was a gift. So please don't be like, oh, look at him squandering our money. What we pay our pastor, he's spending it on these little toys. They were gifts. I did not spend a dime of my own money on these things, okay? So chill out. Don't judge me. It's all right. But we're not all that different, are we? Probably have those same desires. Verse 34, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. See, when God revealed those things to me, I was so convicted. I was so convicted. I was like, man, I thought I'm good. I thought I'm a godly guy. I do all these things. Like, man. But at the same time I felt convicted, I felt so loved. I felt so loved because he intervened. He got into my life. I felt so loved at the same time. He makes himself known because he doesn't want us to get caught in a trap. He woke me up. And maybe some of you need to be woken up to watch yourselves because you're worried. And you're anxious and your desire for riches and pleasures is weighing you down from life that is free of anxiety, that is free of worry, that is free of lust, that is free of covetousness, that is free of materialism. Be watchful of the things that pull you away from God. Because our ultimate security, our our ultimate desire can only be found in Jesus. It cannot be found anywhere else. And not a single one of us is exempt from falling off that path to spiritual maturity. Look at Demas. Demas was a companion of Paul. Paul. He had Paul as a mentor. He had Paul as his teacher. I mean, how can you fall away following Paul? I mean, give me a break. But he deserted Paul when Paul was imprisoned in Rome. Right? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He got choked out. If it can happen to Demas, who has a teacher like Paul, for sure it can happen to me, and it has. Scary thing is, I don't think we know the true conditions of our heart. If it weren't for the grace of God to show me my own heart condition... I'd think that I'm more spiritually healthy than I really am. I would. Three weeks ago, I thought I was way more spiritually healthy than I really am. 
how we need God to show us the true condition of our hearts, to show us before it's too late and we're suddenly caught in a trap. And there are sins that we are really, really, really good at hiding, aren't there? Covetousness. Ooh, I could hide that one. You guys would never know if I never said anything. Lust. There are sins that we are so good at hiding. Most of the pornography problems out there and stuff like that, you guys are not confessing. Right, guys? Some of you guys have confessed that just to me, but you have not shared that openly to deal with that addiction. We need to deal with those types of things. Wanting something, wanting someone which does not belong to us. Wanting fame, wanting recognition, wanting prestige that does not belong to us. In this week's studies, I've been hit square in the face. I feel so convicted, but I feel so loved by God because He's active in my life. He's real. He's so personal and He's so practical in His relationship with us. It is not information. It is not theory. It is not simply knowledge. It leads us to action. Verses 35 and 36. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus spoke about staying awake in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, Blessed are those servants, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Let's skip to verse 45. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk. Sound familiar? Verse 34 of chapter 21. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Whoa! Cut him in pieces, dude! Not just kill him! Jesus wants us to be watchful. Awake for his return. Watch yourselves. Understand that one. Watch yourselves. Be self-aware. Stop judging people and condemning people about their hats and drinking and whatever else you're condemning them about and all this kind of stuff. Watch yourself and be self-aware of the condition of your own heart. Stop judging and condemning others. Watch yourself. Otherwise, you might be like a less mature Peter, right? Mark recorded a judgmental Peter. Back in Mark chapter 14, verse 29, because Peter's there, and he's like, hey, those guys will turn away, but me never. Right? Mark chapter 14, verse 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, they all, I will not. Really funny thing, these are just huge words from a guy that can't even stand up to junior high girls. Right? 
Because the junior high girl is like, hey, you no, 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 not me. And beep, 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 beep. He like starts talking like a sailor and stuff. This is the same guy. And then you would think, oh, Peter must have surely matured after Christ died and he resurrected from the dead. And look at this. John chapter 21, verses 21 through 22. And you're going to notice that Peter is still spiritually immature. When Peter saw him, he's speaking of John. He said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Watch yourself. Don't judge me. Watch yourself. Purpose yourself to stay awake at all times and pray. Pray that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Prayer is awesome. Prayer works. If you're thinking, oh no, then you're just not doing it right. Let's talk. Let's, let's, let's talk about this. Because I can tell you two weeks ago, bam, I'm hit right in the square. He is real. Prayer is what revealed how corrupt my heart is. It reveals to us how we are to flee from the temptations that lure us into dangerous territory and to seek safety in Jesus. What did Jesus tell his disciples to do when they found Jerusalem surrounded in verse 20? He told them, flee, run to safety. How is that practically fitting for us? We are to run to safety in Jesus. Run to Jesus. We have an active role. We have to pray. Pray for strength. Pray for your testimony as a follower of Jesus. Pray for your character. Pray that you stay close to Jesus and that you have a heart like His. Stay close to Him as there is no refuge outside of Jesus and He will answer your prayers. He will answer your prayers. Ultimate safety, ultimate security is only found in Jesus Christ. Verses 37 and 38. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So just a closing description of the last days of Jesus' ministry. Teaching the people every day. And at night he'd head outside the city to a mount called Olivet, which is not anything abnormal. Right? We know Jesus didn't have a lot of means. And so what happens when you go to a popular place during a popular celebration? Right, you think of like Las Vegas on New Year's Eve, right? Or New York City on New Year's Eve, or try going to Bethlehem during Christmas. Right? You are going to find that it's really difficult to find vacancy in the center of those things. And then secondly, it's really expensive. The closer you are to that city center, the more expensive. So you have to go further out to have things more affordable. So the same thing with Jesus and his disciples. To stay close to the temple. You'd have to have some connections. You'd have to have some money. So every night, he and his guys, they would head further away from the temple. And then the next morning, they'd come back. And then he'd teach again, teaching them every day because the day was coming when he would be crucified on the cross for our sins just days later. So to summarize Luke 21 for you. Verses 5 through 7 give us reason for the rest of the chapter. Verses 8 through 11 Warn his disciples not to be led astray and not to be terrified. Verses 12 through 19 describe the persecution that they will experience, yet the hope that they're going to have in God. 
verses 20 through 24, inform us of the destruction of Jerusalem and the escape of the people from that calamity. Verses 25 through 28 direct us to the return of Jesus Christ. Verses 29 through 33 exhort his disciples to be watchful of the events leading to 70 AD. Verses 34 through 36 exhort us to be watchful for Jesus Christ's second coming, his return. We're done. It's not time for us to be complacent about our faith. It's time to take action. It is time to be watchful, to stay awake, and to be prayerful as we wait upon the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are so loving to warn us before you just throw judgment on us, that you've repeatedly, in a long-suffering, patient way, are working with us to not just know your gospel, but to internalize that, Lord, into action, to prove that you have indeed changed our life. Lord, may we not just manufacture action. May we not hide those sins that we're so good at hiding, like covetousness, like lust. May we freely practice confession to one another in safe places, whether that be in home groups or small groups or whatever venue that you have for us. Lord, keep us safe from the cares of this life. Keep us safe and strong against the cares of this life, against worry and anxiety and riches and pleasures from drunkenness, from dissipation. We need you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.